welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance in Maternal Health. Hello, my name is Scott Guthrie. I'm the Infant Medical Director with the Tennessee Initiative of Perinatal Quality Care. And I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee podcast, brought to you by TIPQC. Today, we've got Dr. Colm Travers with us. He's an assistant professor at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, and he is the recent author of a pediatrics publication that looked at quality improvement measures that can improve the mortality and intracranial hemorrhage rates in our tiniest babies that we care for in the neonatal intensive care unit. Colm, you want to tell the audience hello? Hi. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I appreciate you. And one thing I want our audience to know, I, I heard recently that you have a Guinness World Record. Yeah, that's right. Just at the end of 2021, we had been awarded the Guinness World Record for the youngest survivor of prematurity at 21 and one weeks. Well, that's good. But you're here today because you're an expert in quality improvement and especially quality improvement around this group of babies. This is really important to Tennessee, especially TIPQC, as we're getting ready to launch on a project called Tennessee's Tiniest Babies. And what we're going to try to do around our state is design a project that we can implement that will hopefully improve the mortality rates amongst these babies in Tennessee. Tennessee's really similar to Alabama. I actually grew up in Alabama. I grew up in Huntsville. And uh, unfortunately, neither one of our great states are very good as far as the scorecards that we get from March of Dimes, the CDC with infant mortality and preterm birth rates. We're right there, I think, neck and neck. We've got great football teams in the SEC, but we're not doing too well of keeping tiny babies in the mother, keeping them from having some of the morbidities associated with prematurity after they're born. So, Comb, as we get started, one of the questions I always like to, to ask people, if you could have a gigantic billboard, so you're going to work every day. Other people are driving on I-65 as they're going into work there in Birmingham. You could inspire them in some way, or maybe this is just a message you want to get out about the work that you've been doing in prematurity. What would you tell everybody? I suppose I'd want people to know that most infant deaths are preventable. And I think that's especially important when you live in a place like Alabama or Tennessee. I think you want everybody to realize how much of an impact you could make and how many deaths you could prevent through public health measures and changing things. So I probably want to have some sort of message about how we could actually improve infant mortality in our state and that children should survive and thrive in our state. And um, it kind of comes back to that sense of when you want to make a difference, you want to treat other people the way that you would like to be treated yourself. And when I think about that for infant mortality, I think there's just huge opportunities to actually target the most vulnerable groups in our society to make a change and to improve their outcomes of their babies. Wow. Absolutely love that. So if you're putting that up in Birmingham on I-65, I'm going to put it up on I-40 in Nashville. So everybody, can see <laughs> that's, a, that's a good message. 
So let me uh, tell our audience a little bit about this paper that you published. I'm going to go over some of the major points. So as I mentioned, this was a February 22 pediatrics article. You did this from 2016, if I remember correctly, to 2020. So we've got four years of data here. Yeah, that's correct. It was actually my fellowship project when I was doing my fellowship at UAB and continued it after my fellowship. And even though we censored the data for the publication of 2020, it's still going on today. Yeah. So we're still trying to improve outcomes and trying to keep our mortality rate and our IVH rate low. Good. And that's what I, I love about podcasts, because I'm going to pick your brain about what's actually going on right now. That's how you really learn the importance. <laughs> so this was done in 22 to 27 weekers. And what you did was identify some potentially better practices. Then you went in and you implemented in the University of Alabama, Birmingham, which is Alabama's largest NICU. It, it is a huge NICU. You specifically looked at intracranial hemorrhage rates for death in the first seven days of life. You came up with a brilliant concept to call this. Y'all are calling this the Golden Week Project, correct? Yeah, the Golden Week Program. I had learned about this, I guess, wow, over a year ago. I spoke at a conference with Wally Carlo, which I think every neonatologist knows Wally Carlo. And Wally mentioned this, and I was like, that is a brilliant idea. We need to do this in Tennessee. So he put me in touch with you. Back to the paper. You had 820 infants that you had data on, and you were able to decrease their intracranial hemorrhage rates or their death rates, so, so combined outcome, by nearly 50%. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It was uh, really uh, proud of the team and the effort that we put in. I think when we started out, I remember submitting it, the concept to a conference, and I was told that it was too ambitious. It wouldn't happen. I was told by several people we should pick a less major morbidities and focus on more process measures. But I, I think it's very important when you're doing a quality improvement project, there's process measures and there's outcome measures, balancing measures, but I think it's important that your primary outcome should try to be something impactful that makes a difference to the actual babies rather than just focusing on the processes. Yeah, I loved it when I started breaking down these numbers and looking at what you did, specifically mortality dropped by nearly 30% in this group. So not only did you have an, an impressive drop in your intracranial hemorrhage, which I think was somewhere in the near 50% as well, but your mortality dropped 30%, which from Tennessee's standpoint, if we're trying to improve our infant mortality rates and we can get our neonatal intensive care units to improve their mortality rate by 30%, that's going to make a big impact on our state. Mortality, right? Yeah, like, even though these extremely preterm births account for only like 0.5% or 0.7% of the births in, in a state, they account for about 50% of the deaths. Yeah. Even if you can't reduce the number of preterm births coming into your NICU necessarily, although there may be ways to do that, hopefully it will get better in the future. If you can reduce the number of deaths of the babies that do end up in your NICU, you can actually make an impact on your infant mortality rate. Yeah, that's awesome. So last little thing about the paper before we go into some more detailed questions. There were three things that I saw that really seemed to make a difference out of all the, the things that you implemented. And that was your ventilator management, specifically targeting some things there. Indocin prophylaxis improved across your hospital as far as the usage rates of implementing that. And then one of the things I want to talk about to you in more detail in just a little bit is delayed cord clamping. Is there anything else besides those three things that seem to make a big difference? Yeah, I think they're really important things to focus on. The targeting of carbon dioxide is something that we believe in strongly. We've always actually put 
transcutaneous carbon dioxide monitors on our babies, although initially it used to be when they were several hours old. And during the inceptionist, we decided that we could figure out a way during that first hour to get the TC monitor attached to the baby just before we started doing our lines even. So that when, by the time we got our first blood gas, we'd already have it correlated with the CO2 coming from the gas. And that really gave us an opportunity to really closely manage the carbon dioxide levels in these babies right from the get-go. Then uh, the delayed cord clamping was something that we thought was very important. It was At the time, it was kind of emerging evidence um, when we started doing it. And our, we're t- thankful that we work with a group of obstetricians who are also very interested in practicing evidence-based medicine. And it didn't take much convincing for us, thankfully, to get them on board to start implementing delayed cord clamping. I think probably some of our more difficult aspects of implementing our delayed cord clamping were making sure that it reached down to the residents, both for pediatrics and for obstetricians and for nurse practitioners. Mm -hmm. So that when, if we were at a C-section, for example, if the one resident turned to the other resident and said, do you want us to do delayed cord clamping? We're hoping that that resident will automatically say, yes, 30 to 60 seconds, please. That way we can get that rate up as high as possible. So we went from about a 0% rate of delayed core clamping up to about 60% over the course of time. I'm still upset that it's only 60%. So I'm still working really hard to try and get it over 80%. Yeah. And just for our audience's clarity, this is the 22 to 27 week babies that he's talking about that they now have at their institution over 60% delayed cord clamping rate, which is really pretty impressive. And we'll talk more about this in just a second and in, in one of the projects TPC is involved in. I know we've already done a bit of an introduction on this, but just explain to your audience a little bit more about exactly what the golden week is. I've mentioned that term already. What all else is involved in this project? The golden week program is a bundle of evidence-based, potentially better practices for extremely preterm infants that we developed with a multidisciplinary team at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And we basically applied this bundle to all infants who are less than 28 weeks gestation in our unit. Again, we kind of focus on that group because they're the, the infants with the highest risk of death and severe brain injury. And we, we kind of felt pretty strongly that if we, there was opportunities to standardize our care to the best available level of evidence and therefore improve the care in this group. We developed standardized written guidelines, which incorporated evidence-based medicine starting from before birth. Uh, so that kind of perinatal period involving the obstetricians all the way through to the admission process so that kind of golden hour, if you will, then into the first maybe one to three days where we had certain elements that were running in those first few days in particular, and then that into the full week. Because we know that babies of this age group, one of their highest risk periods for death is in that first week. And then when it comes to severe IVH, over 90% of IVH will happen, intraventricular hemorrhage will happen in that first week as well. So we felt pretty strongly that if we could improve care in that first week, that it would hopefully have that knock-on effect of improving survival to discharge and major morbidities. Yeah. So what was it going on in the culture at UAB, and I know you said you started in 2014, came from Ireland then. What was it that you had noticed in the culture at UAB in the neonatal intensive care unit that made a project like this, like perfect for that place and that time? I think what, what worked for us was that there was variation in practice and we didn't have the standard 
written guidelines for many of the elements of our care. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that there was an opportunity there to decrease variability and hopefully decrease variability to potentially better practices and also to standardize it with written guidelines and then implement that those guidelines. Yeah. So one of the fun things when you notice variability in care and you've got a lot of different people involved in care and you say, hey, we're going to try to decrease variability by standardizing a few things and coming up with some potentially better practices. I don't know about the neonatologists in Alabama, but the ones in Tennessee, we can be pretty opinionated about things. How did you get everybody on board in one direction and looking to decrease that variability and doing some of the same things? Yes, it's a really great question. So I think one of our key targets was actually to involve the leadership of the division, uh, like people like uh, Wally Carlo, obviously for us, who's our, our division leader and Dr. Amble, who's our division leader as well, and our nurse manager and our respiratory therapy manager. And we involved those people from the beginning in developing the bundles. And one of the things I felt very strongly about was that when you were practicing as a neonatologist, you'd realize that sometimes the nurses or the RTs didn't really know why you were doing what you were doing. And I felt like this was a huge opportunity that we could actually involve the nurses and RTs and educate the nurses and RTs about why we were doing what we were doing. And then if they knew why we were doing what we were doing, they would also be able to be advocates for the babies when they saw variability in practice that wasn't necessarily evidence-based being done. Hmm. And to, just to politely ask those questions, why are we doing this to this baby and to empower them to understand if they understood why we were doing what we were doing, it would allow them to ask those questions when people were deviating from the plan. Yes. You're talking about major culture change that occurred in your neonatal care unit over this time as well too, right? Yeah, I think that's what it really takes. It does take a culture change. It takes people being on board and um, it takes that buy-in at, at the ground level mm -hmm. to have buy-in from the people who are actually on the front lines, if you will, mm -hmm. and to have champions in the team as well who will bring everybody with them. Okay, so let's go through the process for our audience. So you've got something you want to examine. So let's use neuroprotection, for instance. You've identified, hey, this is something we need to improve on. We need to try to protect our baby's brains. We need to try to decrease our intracranial hemorrhage rates. And you're getting a multidisciplinary group of people as part of your team. Now, if you search the literature, there's all kinds of things that are out there that say, do this, do this, do that, to try to improve this aspect of care for babies. How did you go through all these different things that there may be some evidence for, it may be good evidence, it may be not so good evidence, and then choose which ones you were going to implement in your bundles. So yeah, I must have read, I don't know how many thousand papers or uh, <laughs> certainly abstracts anyway, to try and figure out what might be worth including. It was an interesting process just to go through the evidence and try to figure out things that had some potential for the bundle. Some of the elements that we picked were obviously highly evidence-based, such as making sure that babies all got antenatal corticosteroids or making sure babies got delayed cord clamping. And then there were some other elements, such as maybe a midline head positioning, which didn't have a lot of evidence um, that we thought. But our concept was that if we bundled, say, about 20 different things, and if 18 of them worked or 15 of them worked, and you had this additive process 
where each element would add on top of the other, hopefully to decrease the relative risk a little bit further. I'm thinking about it in terms of probability. If something is, is probably going to work and then you add something else that's has a high probability of working and then you add something else that has a high probability of working and you keep adding multiple layers to your bundle, then you're hopeful that you're going to reduce the, the risk for your babies, that there's a pretty good probability anyway. And so that was how we went about creating the bundle, was picking elements that we thought had a pretty high probability of working or else that were very easily implementable. And then we would bring that to our core committee, uh, which was the multidisciplinary team. And then we would discuss how we could implement it. And then we get agreement on how to implement it. Then we would put it into our education program. That was kind of the process that happened over the first 12 months. Coming up towards the end of 12 months, we decided the best way to implement it would be to create specific order sets that would include all the elements of the bundle. And we thought that was important because if something was in the orders um, in the electronic medical record, we felt like it was more likely to be done if it was ordered. That's what we did in the first year. We created those electronic order sets. And then at the end of the first year, we launched them. And that was the phase two, if you will, after the electronic order sets launched. So you had your group, you had a bunch of potentially better practices that you looked at. The group decided, hey, here's the ones we're going to go with. Then you dropped them. Obviously, education, those components that have to be done, then you dropped them into an entire neuroprotection electronic order set that when the baby was admitted, you could just push the button and everything went to the bedside. Yeah, exactly. The residents actually liked it because everything that they needed to think about to order for the extremely preterm babies was in one spot. And so they could just go and select the Golden Week order set and then everything that they were meant to remember was automatically remembered for them. Yeah. I think it was helpful for the residents and for the nurse practitioners as well, because as you know, residents may only rotate once a year or twice a year, and it could be over 12 months in between their rotations. So there was definitely a risk of them maybe not remembering to order something or possibly forgetting something. It was just one way that we thought would be an easier way to implement what we wanted. And also for the nurses to take care of the babies in terms of the moving and touching elements. And that was also part of the order set that we implemented alongside a pretty robust education program. Let's talk about that a little bit. And because I bet there's one thing that wasn't in your order set that you found out was super helpful and that's delayed cord clamping. It's probably pretty hard to order that as you're going to the delivery. So that very much is education focus. And I'm bringing this up because one of TIPQC's current projects is a delayed cord clamping project. We're calling it optimal cord clamping. And it is targeted toward every birthing hospital in the state of Tennessee. We're trying to get everybody to do this. But we're also specifically focusing on this being the first component of the neuroprotection bundle that we're going to put in our Tennessee's Tiniest Babies project. I was absolutely fascinated when I read this paper and I saw that you had essentially a 0% delayed cord clamping rate in your 22, 27 week babies went to 60 plus percent over the course of this and that it fell out to seem to be one of the most important things to decrease mortality and in intracranial hemorrhage rates. And we've done a lot of education about this so far in the state level. And our neonatal intensive care units are now trying to trickle this down to their local hospitals as this project is being implemented, educating the obstetricians, educating the, the 
people in their practice. Tell me how in the world you went from 0% to 60% and how we can copy that in this 22 to 27 week age group, which is the absolute hardest to get people to wait 60 seconds for. As, as I think we're very fortunate that we work with a really great team of obstetricians at UAB, a maternal fetal medicine specialists, and we meet with them every month. I think it came up that there was emerging evidence at the time of a benefit from delayed cord clamping in the most preterm babies. And so we met with them and presented and discussed the evidence for delayed cord clamping. And we agreed that we should start doing delayed cord clamping. Then we started an education program, the obstetricians educating the, the obstetricians, pediatricians educating the pediatricians. It actually happened very quickly that we went from 0% to 60%. I think it was only in a matter of a couple of months. We, we got up to those really high rates. I'd say I'm still a little bit disappointed that we're only at 60%. And it still bothers me today if I see a baby that was delivered with immediate cord clamping. I think one of the important things about getting these rates higher that I found is making sure that the people who are actually delivering the baby, that's often a resident or maybe a nurse practitioner, and the person who's catching the baby, which again is often a resident or a nurse practitioner, a fellow, whoever's overseeing the delivery, that they have that understanding that if the baby's not breathing well, it's still okay, even if the baby's not breathing, to do 30 seconds of delayed cord clamping. That's probably the highest level of evidence for what to do with a baby who's not breathing well. And if a baby is breathing well, it's okay to wait 60 seconds and to give them that time. And that there's not a rush to get the baby over there. That baby's on the best life support system going when they're still attached to the placenta. So there's not a rush for us to grab the baby exactly. and to deny them the optimal cord clamping. Getting that message over to the residents and the fellows, I think, has been especially important. Yeah, that's been very consistent with our message. It's sometimes hard to implement change. You've done one thing for so long in your career and somebody comes out and says, hey, you know, there's evidence that this is actually better. That's the hardest thing about quality improvement is getting those potentially better practices to stick. Our team also had some experience doing randomized clinical trials involving clamping the cord. And that may have helped us to create a change in our unit. And even right now, we're doing a randomized control trial of resuscitation while the infant is still attached to the cord. And that's true at the University of Virginia. And we're involved in that multi-center randomized trial at the moment. And that was also interesting to have a process change where we're actually resuscitating the baby while they're still attached to the umbilical cord for two minutes. Yeah, That's probably also increased our people's comfort levels with doing 30 to 60 seconds of delayed cord clamping because sometimes we're doing up to two minutes. Oh yeah, most definitely. So what's been the one of the biggest things that you have learned over the course of these several years you've been involved in this project and weighing the evidence that's available, putting together bundles of care like this, trying to be an influencer of opinion and then implement these changes? What, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned? I think one of the biggest lessons is to involve that multidisciplinary team um, from the beginning. I think you need to have people in all the different areas involved um, so you can have champions and people who will help you. I think it's very important to have your nurses or your RTs or maybe you're an obstetrician, somebody involved from all the different areas that you're planning to work with. And I think if you involve everybody early and get them on board, um, and get that buy-in, I think it's much more successful. I think that was one of the main things I learned. You have parents involved in your group? 
at the very beginning, we did have some parents involved and we were making pamphlets and designing our logos and whatnot. Um, and that's actually one of the things I think we missed out on the last several years was not having a parent champion. And that's something I think would be really good idea for any QI. It was very helpful to us at the beginning, but unfortunately the person we had helping us moved on and it's something we haven't replaced yet. I think it's very helpful to have that parent champion. So I want to walk through a clinical case at your NICU. Tell our audience how this works, how the implementation of this goes. So let's say you're called to the delivery of a 24-weeker. You go into the delivery room. What's one of the first things that has changed that you're implementing? Obviously, it's probably that delayed cord clamping <laughs> that you weren't doing several years ago that you're doing now. I bring it back even younger. How about we go to a 22-week delivery Okay. and we go in and we talk to parents. We tell them about the potential risks and what could happen to their baby. And we ask them if they would like us to resuscitate or not, or they tell us what they would like us to do. And they decide that they want to resuscitate. Um, then the obstetricians will give that mom antenatal corticosteroid shots. And that was something that we did change from before we were 22 and five with the expectation that they be have steroids on board at 23 and zero. And we went and talked to them and presented evidence or about giving steroids earlier. And uh, they agreed to do steroids at 22 and zero. And so that mom might get steroids or hoping that the baby stays in to get the benefit of those steroids. Then when the baby is uh, delivered, we're going to do hopefully 30 to 60 seconds of delayed cord clamping. That would be 30 seconds if the baby is not breathing and 60 seconds if the baby is breathing well. Um, most likely at 22 weeks, the baby won't be breathing well. And we will clamp the cord at 30 seconds, bring them over to the resuscitation area, put them into a plastic bag on a warmer mattress. And we, we use a bag and mattress because we had issues with hypothermia in our babies. And we found for our unit, the bag and mattress combination with the hat seemed to improve our temperature without causing hyperthermia just in, in our tiniest babies. The baby will have chest leads, EKG leads placed on their chest and a pulse ox on their wrist. The baby's not breathing. So we're going to start IPBV with an FiO2 starting at 60%. And it, we had a bit of variation before where some people would start at 30% and some people would start at 100%. And we found a compromise that we felt that probably higher FI2 was probably better based on the torpedo trial. Mm -hmm. But we compromised that starting at 60% FIO2. And we will do a selective surfactant based on the support trial criteria. And then we will most likely the baby after five minutes would have gotten intubated and gotten surfactant at 22 weeks. And we'll be brought back to our NICU, have a transcutaneous CO2 monitor attached and have umbilical lines placed. And all of this will happen within the first hour, ideally. And we'll have a blood gas, hopefully within 90 minutes and the TC already running to make sure the baby doesn't get hypercarbic or hypocarbic in that first hour. Then the baby would have had our order sets launched, which would have decided what medications they will get what fluids are going to get, including um, some acetate mixed in our UAC fluids um, to kind of avoid that need for bicarb infusions that people are tempted to do in the first few days when the baby's acidotic. And we'll also have no sodium in our fluids so that we, people don't get so confused about where the baby's fluid balance is in those first three days. I think that's probably the wraps up that first resuscitation the first day. So all those different things that you mentioned there, and these are bundles you put into place. You, you 
got your neuroprotection component. You mentioned like transcutaneous CO2 monitoring, so it's respiratory, but also crosses into neuroprotection a little bit. Are there some other bundles that you implemented or either have implemented over the past couple of years to affect some different systems? Yeah, we, we definitely focused a bit on our skin integrity and the skin protection. And I guess for, for that, we're, we use humidified incubators with 80% humidity. And then after a few days, we dropped down to 50% humidity. We've ch several times had to change what we're doing for our skin integrity. A lot of people are probably surprised to hear that we use transcutaneous carbon dioxide monitors on our 22-weekers. And I'm talking about skin integrity. But what we found was that if we decreased the, the temperature on our TC monitors uh, below what's recommended, we can still get good correlation with our transcutaneous CO2 monitors without causing any skin burns. We also think a lot about how we position lines, how we attach lines, what sort of tape we're using, cleaning off the, any iodine off the skin after we put lines in. So lots of little uh, small things for skin integrity. We also have a thermoregulation bundle, which I mentioned, we put the babies in a bag and a mattress and a plastic hat. And then we bring them back to their humidified incubator. And then after we have our lines in, uh, we take off our bag and our mattress in it's kind of sequentially so that we don't cause hypothermia after the baby gets admitted or indeed hyperthermia. You have a nutrition or gastrointestinal like neck prevention component, anything like the antibiotic reduction that you've implemented as well? Yeah, we introduce an automatic stop day for antibiotics at 36 hours. Um, we also do screen for intubated babies. We screen for mycoplasma, urea plasma. That's just something that we have access to locally. So yeah, recently we also added donor milk for all of our tiny babies in the last few years. Mm -hmm. And we also recently added a probiotic as part of our bundle for FEN and GI section. So Comb, as we get ready to wrap this up, I've got to pick your brain on TIPQC and what we're getting ready to do on a statewide level. Because as I mentioned, we're going to be launching into Tennessee's Tiniest Babies Project. We're going to be taking some of these ideas, some of these concepts that you've done at UAB and implementing this in our 13 level three and four neonatal intensive care units around our state to improve outcomes. You've been able to do it on an institutional level, and I think that is absolutely awesome. I'm very inspired by what you've done, especially your numbers. But what advice would you give us that we could do this easily on a statewide level? First of all, I just say it's amazing what you're doing, implementing something like this at a state level. I think it's fantastic. I think it must have taken so much work to get all of the key stakeholders across the state to get involved with what you're doing in Tennessee. So congratulations on getting everybody on board. I think going for those low hanging fruit that we know make a difference that are highly evidence-based, such as optimal cord clamping making sure that babies get who are eligible get antenatal corticosteroids and i would say basically any baby that's getting resuscitated should get antenatal corticosteroids and uh, delayed cord clamping of 30 to 60 seconds i think that's where the obstetricians have such an impact on what we're doing and um, so involving the obstetrician i think is going to be key for this when the baby is admitted i think that there are bundles like what we introduced with the golden week program available that are transportable to other places. And I think that looking at the different elements of something like the Golden Week program, I think picking out elements that you think are implementable and being ambitious that you can implement multiple things at the same time, especially when you're trying to target something so important like infant mortality 
and you know severe brain bleeds i think the outcome is very important and i think that you can get people motivated hopefully to make a big impact i know you mentioned that you were able to implement about 15 things at your institution in a bundle i think that would be a big grab from a statewide standpoint because you've got all the different stakeholders involved different variations in practice different equipment available let's say we could decrease that to maybe the five most important things out of what you have learned from a neuroprotection standpoint what do you think are the five most important things that you would recommend us take a really careful look at if I had to pick five things, I would say antenatal steroids and um, delayed cord clamping, early respiratory management and um, nursing care. So that's like position, head midline position and even how the nurses are changing the diapers so they don't cause fluctuations in cerebral blood flow and how they take labs from the babies. So basically teaching the nurses how to avoid making changes in the baby that might affect the cerebral blood flow. And then for the doctors, I think targeting their use of boluses and transfusions in that first 72 hours, again, stuff that causes big changes in cerebral blood flow. Does the baby absolutely need a normal saline bolus? Do they actually have signs of poor perfusion? Uh, do they actually need that blood transfusion in the first day or the second day or the third day? Do they need a platelet transfusion? Do they, from the platelet transfusion trial, are you hitting the lower group or the higher group of the platelet transfusion trial? So trying to uh, educate people not to do things that may actually cause harm to the baby. Yeah. And it's like, so sometimes it's actually not doing things that can actually help. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes it is the, the most difficult thing to do, but the best thing to do is just sit on your hands and try to wait a little bit and see if the problem will, will fix itself. Wow. Hey, I've really appreciated talking to you today, but before I let you go, I've got to figure out what's currently going on because this data, I think you wrapped it up in 2020. So I'm going to get to hear now and our audience is going to get to hear the latest and greatest what's happened at UAB with this. What's been going on the past two years? What would you like to share with us? Yeah, we've, we actually have made some changes. I mentioned some of the FENGI stuff of making sure we, everybody gets donor milk and probiotics. One other interesting thing that we did as part of our trying to improve our our bellies was that we actually decided to, that we could try to drop our, our single dose into medicine, trying to reduce our rates of SIP. And so we actually recently did drop our use of single dose into medicine and our IVH rates continued to drop. So we didn't have a, an increase in our IVH or debt rates, which was kind of a nice test of whether we could drop our single dose into medicine safely. And we did that about a year and a half ago and our outcomes actually have never been better for severe IVH or debt in the first week. Let me make sure I understand it. You dropped the endomethacin out completely. We, we only now give it to babies that didn't get antenatal steroids and who don't have any prospect of necessarily being started on a steroid in the first few days that we're not expecting them to be given a steroid. We have about 95% antenatal steroid rate. So we only have a handful of babies that still get postnatal endomethacin. So very selective. Other things that we did recently, we, we developed a uh, golden week program, nursing education curriculum. And we now have trained about 50 plus of our nurses as golden week nurses. And we have about almost hundred percent in the first 72 hours of our babies are cared for by people who've been through this training program. 
And I think that's probably made a big difference to just, again, that decreasing variability, trying to stick to the plan, stick to the guidelines. And as I say, our rate of IVH and debt has actually never been better. Wow. Y'all have done amazing work. <laughs> You're very much to be congratulated about all this. And I'm happy we can share it on TPC's podcast and get the information out there so more people can learn from what you're doing and be inspired to make changes in, in their hospitals or in their states as well. We are expecting this process, as, as you know, to take some time. So we're getting ready to launch this as we get ready to put this into a build mode amongst TIPQC with hopefully rolling out our first neuroprotection bundle in the fall. Watch those run charts and hopefully see the same type of improvements that you have seen across our state. So one final question, is there any place listeners can find more information? Like does UAB have, other than the publication that I mentioned, is you, do you have this on website or anything we can share in our podcast notes with our listeners? Well, if anybody wants to reach out to me by email, you can feel free to post my email um, contact details. We are creating a, a bundle that we can share with people in the future. So we, we, ha- we already did our education program and created that curriculum for UAB, but it was more UAB specific. We've had enough requests now that people maybe want us to create a program that we can transport to other places. So okay. if anybody's interested, they can reach out to me. Well, we may be doing that because that is actually part of the thing we've been investigating was, uh, was bedside education or, or nursing education and physician education and using some of the platforms available to that. So we've been investigating that. Colm, I appreciate you joining us today and sharing your wisdom and expertise in this area. Awfully inspiring. I hope that our audience that has been listening to this, whether you're a parent or a provider, that you have uh, learned something. And if you are a provider, then we look forward to you working with TIPQC as we get ready to launch this project and go on this journey together to improve our state's infant mortality rates and outcomes. Thanks everyone for listening to TIPQC's podcast today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance in Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you'd like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.